and the children can be dismissed to go to Children's Church. And if you will turn with me to Judges chapter 10 and find verse 6. So, Brandon, I completely forgot a number of weeks ago, and I keep leaving that picture um, that's before the slides. So, this has nothing to do with the text today, but I want to bring this up so I can take it out of the slides. You want to keep... So this, if you remember when we were talking about um, the, the time when the, we talked about the tree that was in Shechem, and we talked about how um, Joshua renewed the covenant with the people in Shechem, and he stood up a stone. This, this is Shechem, and this stone has been discovered and dates back to about the time of Joshua. And they think this is the stone that he stood up. This was, would have been the place where Abimelech set himself up as king um, in chapter 9 of Judges. Um, it would have been right near this location. And so I keep forgetting to bring that up. So now I can take it out of the slides next week. All right. That has nothing to do with our text today. But I found that fascinating. Um, just a real quick recap since I was gone last week. Two weeks ago, we transitioned out of the story of Abimelech. Um, and there were two judges that we get very little information about, Tola and Jair. And we don't, it's just a few verses. Um, but we talked about how that was kind of a transition into from Abimelech, which was chaos and, and destruction, into um, what I believe was about a 45-year uh, period of peace, where we're not told the Israelites sinned in any way, specifically from the author of Judges. We're not told that there was any kind of battle or oppression or anything like that. We're just told that Tola and Jair served as judges um, of the people. So that's just, we covered that two weeks ago, and now we're getting into, we won't, we won't even talk about him yet this week in our text, but we're getting into the account of Jephthah. So if you have Judges 10 and you're at verse 6 and you're able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? getting into the next judge. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan and Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim, 
Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the text that we have today. Um, there are some things that are different than what we've seen so far in Judges. Uh, I just pray for you to open our hearts and minds that your spirit would be our teacher and would um, direct us to the truth that we need to know and understand um, and know what that means for our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, the first point in your notes is the way sin works. The way sin works. Um, just for reference, we're about halfway through the book of Judges. So for those of you who are thinking, we're still in Judges? I'm sorry, we're only halfway finished. For those of you who are thinking, I love Judges, this study is so exciting because I know that's what most of you are thinking. I'm sorry that the fun is already half over. But we are about right at the halfway point, and I feel like at least I have learned so much already um, about the nature of sin, and I feel like I identify with the Israelites more than I ever realized, um, but also learning about God's heart and how his heart longs to be compassionate and merciful. All right, so we, when we're introduced, the, the text that we looked at two weeks ago, when we're introduced to Tola and Jair, we're not told that the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, they might have, but the writer of Judges doesn't mention it, and that's information that he usually does. He's pretty consistent in his pattern of mentioning that they have sinned against the Lord in some way. But by the time we get to our text today with Jephthah, we read that Israel once again committed adultery against the Lord. And so there is that period where I think maybe there was 45 years of somewhat of peace, but now again, the writer tells us that they have, they have sinned against the Lord. Um, and as we've been describing this, I've described this as this pattern as a cycle, right? And it is, it is circular. However, Every time they cycle through, there's simultaneously this downward spiral that's taking place. There is, there is um, a, a progression almost. Um, so Israel's sin and their betrayal of God runs deeper and deeper each time they, they cycle through this. There is deterioration of the people as a whole. And so I, I put in your notes that the nature of sin is progressive because it grows. And here's... here's kind of what I'm getting at here. If we, if we sin, 
and we suffer no consequences. You know, if, if we get away with it, we were talking today in Sunday school about how it's rare that you can hide something and it not be found out, but if by chance you get away with it and there are no consequences you suffer, um, or if, you, if, if we sin and we're instantly and consistently delivered from those consequences. So we sin, we realize there's consequence, but like right away God fixes the situation for us. Um, when that happens, um, there appears to be no risk involved so what we do then is we return to the sin, and every time we return to it, we return to it on a deeper level. We seek greater excitement from that particular sin. We want a greater thrill. So we return to it, and we will take greater risks sometimes with that sin. And so if we are involved in a sin and there seems to be no consequence, or we seem to be delivered all the time immediately and don't really suffer the consequences, we tend to go back to that sin, and in order to get more fulfillment out of it, we take greater risks with it. And a perfect example of this is sexual sin. The more one gets involved in it, the easier it is to engage in it again. And with every time, it becomes more normal to us, and as things become normalized, it takes new risks, deeper risks, to make it exciting again. And so it, it's a cycle, but it's a cycle that's spiraling downward and out of control. And that's where we see Israel. That's where Israel finds herself right at this point in the, in the text. So I want to ask the question, then, why, why does Israel continue to run after other gods and forsake the God who's loved them so dearly. He's proven himself over and over and over again to be powerful enough to deliver them, to be sovereign and in control of all things, to show his love and his mercy in his deliverance of them. I mean, if you look at all the things that God did from the time that they were in Egypt until now, he's proven himself time and time again. And and yet, they continue to run after other gods, and I don't understand why. But I do want to talk a little bit about the nature of sin and how it works, because I think this risk-taking plays a role in this. There's something in our fallen nature that wants to rebel and that wants to take risks when it comes to walking with God in faithfulness or not. Now, just some basic biology of, of stuff that goes on in our brains, risk-taking causes, in our bodies, causes this a release of adrenaline in the brain, okay? And when adrenaline is released in the brain, it causes a surge of dopamine. And that is a natural part of the way our bodies are supposed to work so that when we, when we get, get excited, whether it's whether it's good excitement or nervous excitement or whatever, um, that is a natural part of what our, bodies do, our body does so that we can experience joy and pleasure and, and, um, and that kind of thing. And so there are good and there are bad types of risk-taking that cause the release of adrenaline and consequently then the release of dopamine. We usually call it, like in our 
terms today, people call it getting a rush from something, right? So it could be physical risk taking, like skydiving or bungee jumping, whitewater rafting, something like that, where you're not in complete control. So there's, there's risk in that, you know, skydiving, bungee jumping, those types of things, most of the time, a fraction of a percentage of the time, they don't work. So most of the time they're safe, but there's always a little bit of risk that something might go wrong. So there's risk taking in that, and that's a physical thing. It could be emotional risk taking, like going on a first date, or maybe experiencing your first kiss, or something like that. And there's adrenaline pumping, and there's excitement because the dopamine is surging. So it could be emotionally tied. But it could also be negative things. Like some people get this risk-taking pleasure out of things such as shoplifting to see if they can get, if they can do it without getting caught, or doing drugs, or engaging in sexual activity and those kinds of things. Our bodies are designed to have healthy, short surges of this dopamine, but it's dangerous for our bodies if we have too much of it because then your brain becomes addicted to it. And what happens when you have an addiction, right? You, your body has to have the thing to which you were addicted. You get to the point where you can't go without it. You start having symptoms of withdrawal. If you're addicted to something, your body craves more and more of it. And the more, the more you get used to it, the more you have to increase it as you are craving more. What you did before was never enough the next time around. And so sin works the same way. The more you dabble in sin, the more you begin to crave it. And the more you crave it, the more you give in to temptation. And the more you give in to temptation, the more that sin masters you. And you will recall in Genesis 4-7, God said to Cain, since sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So we have this fallen nature. We have this need within us to rebel and to take risks with sin. We begin to crave it and give in to the temptation and God's warning to Cain is that that sin, sin is waiting to master you if you don't rule over it. So then we have to ask ourselves, how do we avoid that? How do we avoid allowing sin to drag us away from God, to, to lure us into things that are against God's character, uh, specifically against God's commands, and avoid the downward, downward spiral that we're seeing that the people of Israel are experiencing in the book of Judges. So as we get into the second point, I want to give you some practical ways to combat sin. Practical ways to combat sin. There's only two things that I'm going to give you, but each one has some subpoints. So I hope I left you enough room to take some notes there if you want to. The first one is don't toe the line with sin. 
don't toe the line with sin. And what I mean by this is many people make, we don't even realize we're doing it oftentimes, but we make these small little compromises when it comes to sin. And so just some examples of how people do this. Maybe this describes you, maybe not. Some people get as close to the sin as possible without actually engaging in that sin. They get, like, they've got a line drawn because that's, that's the line that separates where you stand now and crossing over would be engaging in that sin. And they get as close as they can to that line without actually stepping over. And that's a dangerous mindset to get into. Um, Paul tells the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 5.11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Have nothing to do with them. So flirting with sin is a dangerous thing. Getting as close as you can to that line is just going to increase the level of temptation that you will have to battle. And if you're going to get that close and you're going to hang out and dwell there, you're going to end up stepping over and, and actually engaging in that sin. So flirting with sin actually does the same thing that flirting with a person does, right? It often leads to a deeper relationship. So some people get as close as they can without actually engaging in that sin, and that's a dangerous place to be. Other people might compare themselves to others, right? So I'm, I'm not as bad as that person, so I'm okay. And this is another thing that I, I don't know that we necessarily consciously do this, but subconsciously we compare ourselves to other people, and as long as we're not the worst one in the room, we convince ourselves that we're okay. But the fault in that thinking is that we, what we see in Romans 3, Paul tells the church in Rome, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. So you can't compare yourself to someone else who's flawed. We compare ourselves to the perfect Christ so that we're fully aware of our sin and we're fully aware of the death that it brings and we're fully aware of how vile it is so that when we see it in its fullness, perhaps God will make us learn to hate it. Something that I have prayed for my kids, prayed for myself, um, prayed for people who are becoming, who, who have become new believers, is um, that God would help us to hate sin, that it would just, the, even the thought of it, rather when we're tempted, even the thought of it would make me want to throw up. So we compare ourselves to Christ so that we see our sin for its fullness and what it really is. But some people like to compare themselves to others. You can't do that. Another thing that people do is they have a you-can-look-just-don't-touch mentality with many sins. And this is different than just getting as close as you can without actually engaging in it because you can be at a distance. You can be isolated by yourself, you, whatever it is, the idea, the concept of I can engage some of my senses in it but not actually commit the sin is a dangerous thing to do, but we all do it. 
that thinking is flawed because of what Paul instructs us in Philippians chapter 4. He tells the church in Philippi not to dwell on the things of the sin nature, but he tells them to dwell upon what? Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything, he says, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think upon those things. And so we are to, with a redeemed mind, we are to not dwell upon the things of darkness or the things of the sin nature, but we are to dwell upon those things that are Christ-like. All right, so that's don't toe the line with sin. And if you think about it, all of those things that I brought up, those are all legalistic mindsets. They're all a mindset of, I can do this, this, and this, but as long as I don't do this and this, I'm okay. And that legal, legalism will, you will find yourself veering off the narrow path and away from Christ. So that's don't toe the light with sin. The second one is create accountability in your life. Create accountability in your life. You need to have friends, or at least a friend, that a friend who can be honest with you and who you can be honest with in return, no matter how hard that honesty is. And before I get into these, if, if you think about it, if you look at the history of Israel and throughout the book of Judges that we've been covering, but go further than that, into the Old Testament further, you look at how often they strayed and betrayed the Lord and God in Judges sent Judges to them in the time of the prophets. He sent prophets to them. Um, how often did God send someone to hold them accountable and to give them direction on how to repent and and be made right with him again and they rejected it over and over and over again and in judges they continually are oppressed eventually in the old testament both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are taken conquered and taken off into exile um, because they would not allow someone to speak truth into their life and change their their life the way they were living all right, so you need accountability in your life. So um, a couple things here. The closest of friends will tell you when you're flirting with sin or when you're compromising on holiness. The closest of friends are going to tell you when you're flirting with sin or you're compromising on holiness. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. You need those people in your life who, who are willing to sharpen you like iron sharpens iron when it's, when it's used against each other. You need people in your life who are willing to sharpen you, who are willing to say the hard things in your life. Listen, you know I love you, and because I love you, what you're doing, this, this thing that you're a part of, this thing that you're taking you're engaging in, participating in, this is, 
pulling you away from your relationship with Christ. Or I've seen, I've seen some changes take place in you, and I don't know what it is. I don't know what's causing it, but I, what I'm seeing is not Christ-like behavior. I'm not seeing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. So you need people who are close to you who are willing to tell you that. And Proverbs tells us if you have those people, it will sharpen you and it will, uh, it will keep you accountable. James 5, 19 and 20. James says, my brothers and sisters, if, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And so you need those people in your life who are willing to say, listen, you're off the narrow path. And you're heading this way quite rapidly. You've got to change your life. And James's, James's statement here to his readers is that if you turn a sinner away from that error, that you actually take part in what God is doing to save them from spiritual death and what God is doing to cover their sins. So the closest of friends are going to tell you when you are flirting with sin and you're in dangerous waters. Another thing is that the closest of friends will remind you of your worth in God's eyes. You don't have accountability in your life just so people can point out all the bad things. Because no one wants to hear all the negative without something to build them back up. And that's not what God does either. So the closest of friends are going to remind you of your worth. Psalm 139, we're going to look at much of the psalm here, but the main verse I want to point out is 14. It says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And so when God created you and knit you together in your mother's womb, he created you to be a, a treasured possession. And so when David writes this, he says, I, I know that I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. And we need people in our lives who will remind us of our worth, who, are, who will remind us that we are wonderfully made, that God made us for the purpose of being in fellowship with us. Other parts of that psalm also speak about how God values each one of us. Uh, so verses 1 to 5, if you're familiar with the psalm, verses 1 to 5 talk about God knowing everything about what you do with your day. And it's not because he is a divine judge who's watching your every move so that as soon as you mess up, he could be there to pounce on you and punish you. That's not what it is. It's God valuing you so much that he's concerned about everything in your life. What you're concerned about, God is concerned about. And so Psalm 139 verses 1 to 5 talk about how God knows about everything that goes on in your life throughout your entire day. And he's there to be a part of that. And then if you go on in the psalm, verses 7 to 12, are about how God values you so much that his presence is with you always. Um, that's where David says, where can I go to get away from your spirit? And he says, I can't go here and I can't go here. If I do this, you're there. And so verses 7 to 12 are all about how God values you so much that he will never leave you. His presence doesn't depart from you. No matter what you do or where you go, he goes there with you. 
And then verses 13 to 16 are about how God created you in a very unique way and that each one of us is a treasured possession of the Lord. We've talked before about how the one who bears, the, that which bears an image belongs to the person whose image it bears, right? There's the coin that bears the image of Caesar. Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to him. And then he says, give to God what belongs to God. And we are the image bearers of God, and so we belong to him. So create that accountability in your life so that people will tell you the hard things when they, you need to hear it, but will also remind you of your value and your worth in God's sight. All right, point number three is regret versus repentance. And so we're going to pick up again in our text here and look at what Israel is doing here. With each of Israel's offenses throughout the book of Judges, we witness the faithfulness of the Lord as he time after time delivers his people. However, in our text today, there's something different that takes place that we haven't seen yet. Israel continues to spiral downward, and for the first time, God hesitates on declaring his intent to deliver. So look at Judges 10, verses 11 to 14. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. So he leaves the people wondering if they've pushed him too far. This has clearly affected the relationship between Israel and the Lord. And because you and I were in the, t in the timeline, we are long past that, and we've read this before, we know that God's compassion for his people is unending and that that compassion will be stirred within them and he will deliver them once again. But the Israelites didn't know at the time when God told them he wasn't going to save them and that they needed to cry out to the pagan gods that they'd been serving. They didn't know at the time that God would eventually be stirred in his compassion and deliver them. And so he leaves them wondering if they've pushed him too far. There's this hesitation to declare, yes, I will deliver you. Now, I want you to listen to Israel's response when they first cry out to him, okay? So they, this is verse 10. This, this is prior to God's response when he says, I'm not going to save you anymore. The first time they cry out to him, they say, um, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. So they admitted they're wrong. They admitted what they had done was wrong. They acknowledged that they'd sinned against the Lord by worshiping other gods. But because God's response is so firm and, and out of the ordinary for what we see in Judges, we have to ask why. And I'm wondering if Israel was not really repentant. They cried out and they admitted that they were wrong, but... 
Perhaps they have regrets for the way it turned out, but not, not, not necessarily repentance. So they've acknowledged their sin, but acknowledgement and repentance are not the same thing. Admitting something you did and being sorry for that, uh, the fact that you betrayed someone else, those are two different things. Admitting I did something and actually being sorrowful for it are completely different. So Israel seems to have the classic response, I'm, I'm sorry because I'm in trouble. You know, like, I'm not really sorry because I betrayed your trust or because I disrespected your authority or because my action showed a lack of love for you, nothing like that. I just don't like the fact that there's a negative consequence now for my action. So I'm wondering if they weren't truly repentant, which is why God said, no, I'm not going to save you anymore. Go cry out to the gods that you're worshiping and serving. But after God says that and Israel responds again, we see what I think are signs of a deeper repentance and a deeper commitment to the Lord because they get rid of their idols and they serve the Lord. They get rid of their idols and they serve the Lord, the text tells us. And I don't know that I would think this necessarily, except this, this looks very similar to a couple of other places in Scripture where we see this type of thing take place and it's a genuine repentance or a genuine commitment to the Lord. Because it looks a lot like what the Israelites did in Genesis 35. Jacob told his family to get rid of their foreign gods. They did so, and they served the Lord, and the Lord was with them. That's Genesis 35. It also looks a lot like Israel's response in Joshua 24. When Joshua told them to get rid of their foreign gods, and the people did so, and committed to serve the Lord, and God was with them. It's very similar wording, very similar circumstances, specifically the command to get rid of their idols and to serve the Lord, and here they did that. And so I think maybe after he gets firm with them and, and tells them no, perhaps there is a deeper repentance that takes place and a deeper commitment made to him. So in Judges 10, the people's sin had spiraled to a depth of evil that God could not leave unaddressed. They cried for help, but God said no because they'd forsaken him for other gods. They repented, they threw away their gods, and they served the Lord. And once again, as I told you at the very beginning, we see God's heart of mercy and his compassion move him to deliver his people. And he does. All right, real quickly, going to wrap this up. In terms of our life and how we sometimes resemble what Israel is doing in the book of Judges, no matter what your sin is, no matter how grievous and vile it is, 
just like with Israel, God looks on you with love, the love, same love that he had when he first created you, and his heart of mercy is moved to forgive and to restore your relationship with him. Next week, we start Advent, which should remind us every year of the length to which God would go in order to restore us and make us in right fellowship with him. The length to which he would go because he couldn't bear, if he can't bear Israel's misery here, he cannot, certainly cannot bear the thought of being separated from us for all of eternity. And so he sends his son to become a man, to live a perfect life, and then unjustly take our punishment upon himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your unending love, your unconditional love, your love that moves you to have compassion and mercy on us. We are sorry and ask for your forgiveness, Lord, when we continue to cycle through the same sins over and over and over again. But we pray that your compassion and your mercy would always be extended in a way that changes us each time, makes us more like you, that teaches us, God, to understand how vile our sin is, to see it in its fullness. And we pray that your spirit would teach us, God, to hate it so that we don't find ourselves spiraling downward into deeper and deeper depths of evil like the people of Israel in Judges. We're getting ready to serve, um, to partake in the Lord's Supper, Father, and we, we pray that as we do this that your spirit would, would cleanse us, would draw us close to you, would make us hunger for righteousness and that you would then in response to your promise in Matthew chapter 5 you would fill that hunger in Jesus name